friends. Thank you for tuning in to the weekly City Church San Francisco podcast. Throughout the fall of 2020 on this podcast, we'll be taking a look through the Bible at what happened to people when things fell apart in their worlds, sort of like what many of us are experiencing right now. We're calling this fall series When Things Fall Apart because, well, things feel like they're falling apart. So let's talk about it. We invite you to lean into these stories each week to embrace the intersections where these ancient stories collide with our current collective world and our own personal lives. As always, we thank you for being a part of City Church Online through this podcast. And we invite you to join us live each Sunday at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch. Thanks. The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. The Word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us to believe that you see us. You know us. You see us right now in the midst of whatever anxiety we're carrying. You see us in the midst of whatever weariness we're experiencing. You see us in the midst of us trying to trust you in the midst of uncertainty. And so right now we pray that you would give us grace to believe that you see us completely and you love us completely. And that even this moment that we have right now, you have seen to it that we are here and present for it. So give us grace right now, we pray to be present to your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I read, when I read this story and meditated on the, all throughout the week, I, I continued to go back to my childhood. I continued to remember hearing this story um, to the fear that I had as a child. And I would hear this story and think, if I can't have walk-on-water faith, I'll sink too. I mean, if Peter sinks, I'm going to sink. Maybe you were brought up in Christian communities when voicing fear or doubt or uncertainty was shamed. 
I know I can remember hearing perfect love casts out all fear. True. So I guess what I heard is if I'm fearing, I'm sinning. If I'm afraid, something's wrong with me. So we maybe were taught to kind of buck up and to deny. We are, if we are uncertain or questioning, we don't say anything. We keep it internal because we learned it didn't pay to question the group think, to acknowledge fear or uncertainty, to be curious about what we haven't seen. So instead of inspiring further investigation and perhaps a deeper trust, fear and doubt and uncertainty and all the corollaries are covered in shame and guilt and ultimately hopelessness. In this story this week in the gospel, the disciples contend with deep atavistic fear, fear of the unknown, fear of suffering, fear of death, fear of oblivion. The setting is the Sea of Galilee, a body of water surrounded by hills and prone to sudden violent windstorms. In biblical literature, the waters and the great sea were deemed a threat. It was where all the bad things were. In other words, Semitic culture was not great surf culture, necessarily. And when you go to the end of the Bible in Revelation, it offers a vision of paradise, and it says this, and there will be no more sea. Because the sea is traditionally the source of deep and threatening powers of dragons. They obviously were not watching The Octopus Teacher on Netflix, but I digress. Add to this that it's nighttime. The disciples are in a boat, crossing the sea on their own, as per Jesus' instructions. As the night wears on, the wind and waves intensify, and the disciples, still far from land, are struggling against the turbulent water. Meanwhile, Jesus, having spent the previous day teaching and feeding the 5,000, is up in the hills, seeking renewal in solitude and prayer, perhaps grieving as well as just before this, John the Baptist was savagely murdered by the powers that be. And sometimes before dawn, the text tells us, Jesus descends from the hills and approaches the boat. And when the disciples see him walking on the water towards them, they're terrified. It's a ghost, they cry. No, they were not really afraid of a storm on the water. They'd experienced the combination of the Sea of Galilee being the second lowest point on the earth's surface, not that they would know that, but they experienced those conditions um, juxtaposed against high mountains, creating conditions for those storms I talked about. On one of my trips to Israel, I saw a storm whip up really quickly over this same body of water. Jesus doesn't rebuke the winds even. He just shows up. And that is what really terrifies the disciples, seeing a man walk on water in the murky vision of early morning light. But Jesus, knowing this, identifies himself in an effort to reassure the disciples. He says what should have ended this story in some ways, or maybe take it in a different direction. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And 11 of the 12, as far as we know, were silent, maybe relieved to hear Jesus's voice, Probably still freaked out, though. But Peter, of course, Peter, right? Of course. Not known for his impulse control, necessarily. Proposes a bizarre test to prove the would-be ghost's identity. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. 
So this is an act of faith, or maybe, I would contend, maybe a reckless bit of stupidity rooted in anxiety. Caroline Lewis, New Testament professor at Luther Seminary, posits, Peter thinks he can walk on water. What will that prove anyway? How is Peter being able to walk on water going to help him believe that it's really Jesus? Maybe Peter hopes that by stepping out on the sea, that will be the act of courage he needs for faith. Maybe Peter wonders if he will be convinced of Jesus' promises if he thinks big. Maybe Peter will believe in himself if he is able to do what Jesus does. You know, I think it's safe to assume all of this and all of that and more as Peter decides to step out into the water. Peter stepping out of that boat has more to do with him than it does with Jesus. I can remember my therapist of 10 years would repeat to me over and over, it seems, behavior has meaning. Remember that. Behavior has meaning. Such an important statement. If you can begin to let that sink in, it will give you a more compassionate way to deal with the disappointments and contradictions, not only in yourself, but in your spouse or your friendships and your relationships and your children. Otherwise, we simply look at behavior. Instead of looking for meaning, we just judge it as right or wrong and levy our verdicts and walk away. But what if we were to be curious about our behavior and ask, what is the meaning of this behavior? Now, years ago, one of our kids, who will remain nameless, got caught doing something that's, well, out of bounds. And instead of punishing the child with a verdict, I tried to learn from my therapist and instead asked, what are you trying to say to us with this behavior? I don't believe it was a question they were anticipating. What are you trying to say to us with this behavior? And the conversation was rich, still difficult, didn't resolve a whole lot, but we were talking about the things we actually needed to be talking about. Fears with this child, fears, disappointments, anxieties, anger, shame, peer pressure, unresolved inner conflicts. That's the good stuff. I think we can get fixated on relieving the tension, demanding an answer, when we might want to make a practice of saying to ourselves and to others, what's happening in me right now that has me demonstrating a behavior I'd rather not have anyone know about, that has me asking a question or wanting an answer so badly that I'll do something like jump out of a boat and try to walk on water. I mean, I look at Peter and I see someone who could not sit still and trust. This tension he felt needed relief. More on that in a moment. But back to the story. Jesus says, come, after Peter throws that out and Peter steps boldly, I would say perhaps recklessly, out of the boat. And for just a moment there, Peter walks on the water towards Jesus, but then he realizes what he's doing and he notices the wind and the rising waves, the dark water, fear overwhelms him. He begins to drown. 
And he cries out, Lord, save me. And it says that immediately Jesus reaches out his hand, catches Peter, delivers him to safety. And then says something that, I don't know, sounds a little insensitive on the face of it, but says, you of little faith, Jesus says to the breathless, soaking wet Peter, why do you doubt? Why did you doubt? We never hear Peter's answer because Peter doesn't know himself perhaps well enough to answer. Sometimes we feel that way about our behavior, don't we? I don't know why I did that. The storm dissipates and the disciples say, truly you are the son of God. What is the meaning of this behavior? What can we learn from this? Well, first thing comes to mind is that perhaps Peter is a mirror, a mirror showing us ourselves, inviting us to believe that Jesus will deliver us in the midst of whatever sinking we're experiencing. Walter Brueggemann put it this way, Old Testament scholar, Peter walks, becomes frightened by the wind, begins to sink, cries out to Jesus, and is rescued. This familiar sequence of actions needs to be understood in light of the obedient act that put Peter on the water in the first place. It's not the story of the skeptic who habitually doubts, but the story of the faithful follower who becomes overwhelmed by the circumstances surrounding him, who begins to lose his nerve when he discovers the odds stacked against him, but who from Jesus finds a steadying, delivering hand. Okay, but let's go just a little bit further. Lest we get caught into a fear-shaming narrative of performative faith, which this story lends itself to, before we begin to say things like, see, when Peter exercises boldless, bold faith, fearless faith in Jesus, he is able to do the impossible. His faith empowers him to walk on the water, just like Jesus. But as soon as Peter gives him to fear, he drowns. And that's why you're drowning too right now. You gave in to fear. Well, before we go there, let me just say, I think that way of thinking is dangerous. Debbie Thomas in her Journey with Jesus lectionary commentary put it this way. Nowhere in the Gospels are we called to prove our faith or test God's character by taking pointless risks that threaten our lives. Nowhere in the Gospel does Jesus teach us that bad things happen to us because we're too chicken to earn God's protective care. Whether we're talking about respecting the power of the sea during a vicious storm or heeding expert medical advice during a global pandemic, the same caution applies. Recklessness is not faith. Stupidity is not courage. Now, friends, I'm not trying to be too hard on Peter here. But the other disciples appear to have trusted what Jesus said. It is I. Don't be afraid. But only Peter decided to challenge him. To do exactly what those who would one day put Jesus on a cross did, which was ask him for verification over and over again. I mean, honestly, what Peter is saying here sounds very similar to the voice heard in the wilderness that Jesus heard from you-know-who, who kept saying, if you're the Son of God, do this or that. It's just a curious response. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. You know, when I am baffled at someone's response or at my own response, I look for anxiety. What anxiety is Peter trying to assuage? 
what anxiety has him thinking the best place for him right now is out on the water as if he could walk on it. His fear leads him to test and question Jesus' identity instead of taking Jesus' self-disclosure at face value. It's almost like he's saying, if it's you, then enable me to do the impossible. Make magic happen so that I will be dazzled out of all my doubt. If it's you, reorder reality and prove to me that you're God. And Peter kind of defaults in this instance to kind of a transactional relationship with Jesus, one that Jesus is not interested in really having. Okay, Jesus, prove that you care about me. I'll do A, but you had better do B in return. Have you done this? Of course you have. Everybody does this. <laughs> this kind of thinking, this transactional thinking is so natural to us. I'll be good. I'll quit doing X. I'll volunteer, whatever. But I'm expecting in return a job, a career, a spouse, a child, a this, a that, or whatever it is that we think we must have. All good things. So I relate to this. Fear, anxiety, uncertainty all drive us towards transactional ways of being in the world rather than transformational ways of being in the world. Quid pro quo is our lingua franca. Jesus invites us into something more risky, more true, more healing. He invites us to trust him. Hear my voice and trust me in the midst of your fear. I will show up for you in ways you cannot now envision, Jesus says to us. Now, you know, that's a big ask. That's a heavy lift. Peter and his disciples would be able to do this much easier after, and it's still hard, but they were able to live into that trust after Jesus is crucified and risen from the dead. But that's the position we're in on this side of the cross and the resurrection. Can you begin to say, if that's true, then I can trust Jesus with my life, no matter the outcome of the election, no matter my pandemic-weary existence, no matter, fill in the blank, I can trust him in the midst of uncertainty. And back to the story, you know what happens. Peter sinks. He's literally in over his head. And Lord, can we relate to that right now? COVID-19, failing economies, social isolation, political brokenness, unhealthy marriages, sick children, unfriendly neighbors. Well, my neighbors are not particularly unfriendly, but maybe yours are. Grinding jobs, financial uncertainty, threatening our lives. Of course we feel afraid when our basic biology betrays us into anxiety, panic, and depression. But the issue is not fear. The issue is where the fear might lead us. The kinds of rash decision-making that might come out of it. Once Peter is safe in the boat, Jesus asks him the question he can't answer. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? As I said earlier, it seems like kind of an insensitive question, maybe even a punishing question. But I'm going to return back to Debbie Thomas here once again, where she says, I wonder if Jesus asks this question, not because Peter gives way to panic and nearly drowns, but because his doubt compels him to make a foolish request in the first place. I wonder if Jesus' question means something like this. Peter, 
As soon as you saw me, I told you exactly who I was. You heard my voice. I spoke words of assurance and comfort to you. Why didn't you believe me? Why do you doubt that I am with you, for you, in you and around you? After all this time, why do you still feel the need to test me? No doubt you see yourself in this story. I mean, I know I do. I'm Peter. I'm the other disciples. I'm the one who has allowed fear and anxiety to make really stupid decisions, to say things I wish I could take back, to post comments that say way more about me than it does about anything I'm writing. But I have good news. Jesus comes after us anyway. That's really what I think this story is about. The real point of the story. Not Peter's faith or lack thereof, not the disciples' fear or caution. It's not about their trajectory, but Jesus' trajectory, which is always towards them in this story. I mean, what do you have in common with all the disciples in this story? They are those whom Jesus draws near, saying, It is I. Do not be afraid. This is a story of Jesus moving towards them. When they're struggling at sea, he moves towards them. When they decide he's a menacing ghost, he moves toward them. When they decide, when they're terrified by his approach, he moves toward them. When they're terrified and they're reckless enough to set him a dare, he moves towards them. When they begin to drown, he moves towards them. When they ask for help, when they're shivering and sorry for their rashness, when they realize who he is and what he is, he moves towards them. And finally, just gets in the boat. That's just about as with them as he can be. I think the same is true with you and me. Hear this today. When you feel lost, he moves towards you. When you fail, he moves towards you. When you wander, he moves towards you. When you are lonely, he moves towards you. When you feel like damaged goods, he moves towards you. When you can't believe in yourself any longer, he moves towards you. When you are afraid, he moves towards you. When you are overwhelmed, he moves towards you. When you don't see a way through, he moves toward you. Today is All Saints Day. It's a day the church remembers people in our church's past for their lives of faithfulness. And no doubt we should be inspired when we remember their lives and how they bore witness to the gospel. But let's remember they're just people. No more a saint or more a sinner than any of us, all in need of grace, all the recipients of a God who in Jesus Christ is always moving toward you. Nadia Bowles-Weber put it this way, we might see the moral of the story as you should have so much faith that you can walk on water toward Jesus. But the truth of this story is that Jesus walks toward us. The truth of the story is that my abundance 
of faith or lack of faith does not deter God from drawing close. That even if you are scared to death, you can say, Lord, save me. And the hand of God will find you in even the darkest waters. Because this is a story not of morals, but of movement. Not of heroes of the faith making their way to Christ, but of Christ drawing near to you in the midst of fear. One final note. Because of this story and other stories like it, and the, the centrality of so many stories being boats and fishermen and the Sea of Galilee and so on, a boat was one of the earliest symbols of the church, the community of Christian faith, a safe haven, a place of salvation, a place of protection and welcome and care. Imagine if Peter had instead said to his fellow disciples, I know this ghost-like figure says he is Jesus, but I'm racked with anxiety and fear, so you know what? I'm heading out to see if it's really him. And the other disciples talking him down from this idea, reminding him that no, this is Jesus, and that we can wait and trust together. And Peter sitting back down, maybe a little comforted, that in this boat he has loved and has the wisdom of the counsel of many instead of his own fears. Friends, I don't know. Here's the point. We are meant to do this together. We are meant to trust Jesus will save us together, which is why we are doing all we can to, to mitigate the virus while also creatively connecting with one another, and it's so important that we do it. Friends, I don't know what happens on Tuesday or what happens in the aftermath. One thing, however, will remain unchanged, no matter the outcome of the election. You are God's beloved child. You are God's beloved child. God's eye of surveillance, God's eye of care, his gaze of love is always upon you. And when you say, Lord, save me, the hand of God will find you in the darkest waters. It will always ever be this way. Let us pray. Gracious God, help us to believe that in the midst of our sinking, you were always there. You were always there to save. You were always there to extend your hand and get in the boat with us with all of our fear and anxiety, with all of our questions, with all of our feeling overwhelmed. And so we pray that we might have a deep, an abiding sense of you being in the boat with us right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.